So recent studies are showing that our nation has a self-esteem problem. And uh, when you hear self-esteem problem, it might not be what you think. If, if you're like me, when you hear that someone has a self-esteem problem, generally it's that they think too lowly of themselves, right? And they need, they need a boost of self-esteem. And the reason that we think that way, if that's your initial response, is because of something called the low self-esteem theory of misbehavior. And that started sort of perpetuating in the early 20th century. And, and that theory goes like this. Uh, the reason... One of the primary reasons people harm others or, or can't have really meaningful relationships or can't find happiness is because they have low, low self-esteem. So they misbehave. So the corrective, according to this theory, is what we need to do is we need to tell people, we need to boost their self-esteem and tell them how great they are. And if they understand how great they are, then, as the theory goes, it will affect society better. There will be no more damaging relationships, and they will discover personal happiness. Well, psychologists and scientists are finding that that's actually not true. Uh, Roy Baumeister, who's a psychologist and professor at Florida State University, did this groundbreaking study several years ago where he looked at 1,500 articles written from 1970 to the early 2000s on the low self-esteem theory of misbehavior, and he found out that of, of these 1,500 articles, only 200 of them were actually, uh, actually passed sort of the scholarly and scientific test to be a legitimate publication. He found out most of them were just opinions on this theory. And as he started digging deeper at the research, you might be surprised or you may not be surprised to find that what Baumeister found was people who think too highly of themselves are actually more prone to damage relationships. They're, they're more of a danger to society and, newsflash, they're less likely to be personally happy. New York Times columnist and psychologist Lauren Slater talks about this. She comments on why this is hard for us to hear. She says, one of this country's most central tenets, after all, is the pursuit of happiness, which has been strangely joined to the pursuit of self-worth. She goes on to say that shifting a paradigm is never easy, but that's actually what we need. Slater says we need a paradigm shift because the pursuit of happiness is good, but somehow along the way, we thought that happiness is found if we pursue our own self-worth and self-exaltation. Now, don't mishear me on here. What I'm not saying, and what this doesn't mean, is that we deny the intrinsic value of people. People are made in the image of God and have worth just by that very fact. Nor does this mean that we reject encouragement or affirmation. That's an important part of human flourishing. But what these studies are showing is, is just simply what the Bible teaches on nearly every page. Newsflash, pride is dangerous. Self-exaltation doesn't lead to personal happiness. It doesn't lead to the health and flourishing of societies. In fact, humility is what leads to true happiness. Humility is what leads to stronger relationships. So this paradigm that even the world is recognizing that needs to shift, our text this morning provides for us this paradigm shift. We, we see as we look at John's interaction with his disciples and as he responds explaining his place in light of Jesus' exaltation, we see that true joy is found in the exaltation not of self, but of Jesus. In fact, if you could sum it all up, you could put it very simply. What John shows us, John the Baptist, is that when Jesus gets the glory, we get the joy. 
in the pursuit of Jesus' exaltation is not in conflict with our pursuit of happiness. The problem is not that we pursue happiness. It's that we find it in the wrong places. And so as we walk through this text this morning, we're going to see three things I want to point out to you. First, we see the increase of Christ in verses 25 through 26. Then we see the decrease of self in verses 27 through 30. And then lastly, we bring it all together and we see the joy for each of us in verses 31 through 36. So let's jump in. First, we see the increase of Jesus Christ. Verses 22 and 23, if you notice, they sort of set the stage for us. Look at verse 22. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. So Jesus' ministry is beginning. He's in the Judean countryside with his disciples uh, baptizing. And uh, the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, tells us Jesus, Jesus wasn't doing the actual baptizing. It was actually his disciples under his authority and so there, there start, Jesus is starting his ministry, and he's starting to gain popularity. Then verse 23, we read, also, John was baptizing near Anon, near Salem. Now, we don't know exactly where this is, but G- John, is, his ministry is continuing. And so what we have here is ministry overlap. If you've been with us through uh, this series through the Gospel of John, you've seen this character, John the Baptist. He's come on the scene, he's been doing ministry for a while, and he really had one message. Jesus is coming, I'm pointing people to him, and when he comes, you won't have a need for me anymore. But it wasn't as if, you know, John decided, okay, here's my last day to clock in at work. You know, it's on the 31st. Jesus, if you could be ready, you know, on the 1st, and then we could sort of pass the baton. It didn't work out that way. There was this ministry overlap, and it looked very, very similar. They're both preaching repentance. They're both telling people to turn from their sins and come to God. And as this ministry is overlapping, John's ministry is decreasing. People are still coming, but less and less. And Jesus is seeing more and more of an increase in popularity. And what this does is it creates this scene for tension among John's disciples. Verse 25 tells us, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now we don't know exactly what this discussion was, but but here's what we can assume that it led to. Somebody, a Jewish person, was seeing both of these ministries, and they came up to John's disciples and said, hey listen, you guys are over here, and you're doing the whole baptism thing, and you're telling people to repent, and then Jesus is over here, and I, I know this is hard to hear, but he's got more people than you do. Like those crowds are growing. His ministry is starting to flourish. And yours, no offense, but, you know, look around. People are leaving. And it's likely that this discussion was over the legitimacy of John's baptism. Since people are leaving you and going to Jesus, does that mean what you guys are doing isn't real? Does that mean mean there's no purpose And so this leads them, the disciples of John, to approach John the Baptist. And notice how they respond. They respond not with a question, but with a statement that reveals their jealousy and resentment. Look at verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, that might seem like a harmless statement there, but actually the tone reveals their hearts. Listen to what they say. They say, they don't even mention Jesus' name. Hey, hey, John, rabbi, teacher, 
he who was with you. They knew his name. They say, he who is with you has gone and he's baptizing. They're down-talking Jesus. Then they even hint that they think that John is more significant than Christ. They say, the one whom you bore witness to, almost as if they're saying, remember that guy, you gave him his big break? Now he's stealing all of your thunder. And then, lastly, they say, all are going to him. Which, by the way, is not true. We've already seen, John's told us at the beginning of this text, that people were still going to John. What's happening is the same thing that happens to us when we get frustrated, right? You've ever had a bad day and someone's like, how's it going? Terrible. Everything's terrible. No one likes me. Nothing ever goes my way. You really just had a bad day, right? But when we're frustrated, we're, we're prone to hyperbole. So they say, everyone's leaving us and all are going to him. And they're bitter. There's, they're not excited about this increase of Christ. They're actually dissatisfied and embittered. Now, their general assessment is correct. Not everybody was going to, to Jesus, but John's ministry was diminishing, and Jesus is gaining popularity. The problem is his disciples saw this as a threat. They saw it as us versus them, which is very surprising because John the Baptist was the kind of preacher that really had one sermon. He only had one message. I'm here to point other people to Jesus. It's not about me. It's all about Christ. He's coming. He will be lifted high. And these men heard this over and over and over again. See, the problem here is not a head issue. It's not that they didn't know. It's a heart issue. They didn't like what was happening. It, this reveals the desires of their hearts. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus tells us, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, it's one thing to talk about the exaltation of Jesus in theory. In theory I'm all about Jesus getting the glory. But then once it costs you something, it reveals what you really think about him, Right? And that's what's happening here. It reveals the desires of their hearts. But more than that, it actually reveals an idol of the heart. They wanted the success of their ministry more than the exaltation of Jesus. See, an idol is something or someone that is the object of greatest value in your heart. It's not necessarily a little golden thing that we bow down to. Anything Jesus says, where your treasure is, whatever that is, there your heart will be also. So let's think for a moment about these men and their desires and what this causes us to search in our own selves. I want you to see how their, their response reveals this desire of their heart and how this idolatry disrupts their relationship in three ways. It disrupts their relationship with God, it disrupts their relationship with others, and it disrupts their inner life. Notice how this disrupts their relationship with God. See, when something threatens to take away what we cherish, our true allegiance is revealed. What we really love and what we really want is exposed. The question we have to ask is, what is that for us? For these men, it was success in ministry. And I want to say this. That's not a bad thing. What these men were doing was telling people to turn from their sins and come to God and find life. That's a, that's a good thing. But... Good things can still become idols, right? Money is not a bad thing in and of itself. But when money competes with allegiance for Christ, it becomes an idol. Career is not a bad thing. Wanting a successful career is not a bad thing. 
But when it competes with your allegiance for Christ, what has happened? It's become an idol. Whether it's money, career, sex, relationships, comfort, none of those things are evil. But when we exalt them above Jesus, we've actually put ourself on the throne of our hearts. And when something threatens what you most love, your beloved treasure, you become anxious, right? You become jealous. You become bitter, just like the disciples of John. We see this in toddlers, right? I just, just, if you want to test this, just go up to a two-year-old and just yank the toy right out of their hand. Tell me what happens, right? My daughter Piper had when she was younger. She still has this, but she really doesn't care about it anymore. She had this little elephant named Ellie, and you couldn't go anywhere without Ellie, And if you lost Ellie, which would happen on occasion, it would be a disaster. And she couldn't sleep without Ellie, right? Now, what's funny is we think, oh, that's cute. We sort of grow out of that. We actually don't grow out of that. We just replace Ellie with something else, right? Promotion and pay raise that you wanted goes to someone else at work. You respond with jealousy. The spouse doesn't meet your expectation. The kids aren't behaving the way they should. The career's not looking like what you thought it would be. And the result is we respond with bitterness and anger. And notice what happens with these men. So much so that they find themselves at odds with God. What they call bad, the exaltation of Jesus, God calls good. Instead of trusting God, they act as if they know what's best. And that's what idolatry does. It disrupts our relationship with God. But notice also it disrupts relationship with others. These men are talking down to John, their master, about Jesus. They're attempting to decrease his significance with their words. They don't don't go to him, again, they don't go to him with a question. Hey, Jesus, what do you think about this? Or, hey, John, what do you think about Jesus' ministry? Because they know the answer already. They come to him trying to spread their bitterness. Their their attitude is, hey, John, aren't, aren't you bothered by this? So they're talking down to another instead of celebrating the victory that God is giving. And they find themselves not only talking down to Jesus, but also at odds with John, their rabbi. So we have to ask ourselves the question, how how do we respond to the success of others? Do, Do we rejoice when God gives others success? Or do we respond with bitterness? Oh, they don't deserve that. Or or jealousy. Why didn't why didn't I get that? And notice what they miss out on. They should have been excited. They should have been overjoyed. The Savior of the world is gaining popularity. But instead, they put themselves at odds with him. You see, idolatry affects both our vertical relationship with God and it disrupts our horizontal relationships with others as well. But notice also, it disrupts our inner life. These men have exalted self above Christ and the result is not happiness. You're not looking at this and say, man, I want to be just like these guys. No, the result is bitterness, not better relationships. See, if your ultimate treasure is something temporal, whether it's the success of ministry like these men or or the success of your job or money or a relationship, whatever it is, if it's something temporal, bitterness is what awaits because none of those things last. Now, let's get practical for a second. Because this is a unique scenario, right? None of you are going to be discouraged this week because someone else is preaching sermons and gathering more crowds than you. But you will face a similar situation this week. Something will happen where something you love and treasure will be threatened. 
Someone will bother you. You'll have an argument with a spouse. Something will happen at work. And you will be tempted to respond in this way. And I'm not saying that because I'm a prophet. I have a decent pulse on the human condition. Something will happen that will frustrate you this week. And let me encourage you, when you experience these emotions, don't do what we're prone to do, which is just brush them off. I don't know what came over me, right? We've all said it. That's why you laugh, right? I've got news for you. Nothing came over you. Something came out of you, right? Or, or don't, don't blame shift, right? That's what we've been doing with sin since day one. Adam, Eve made me do it. Eve, the serpent, made me do it. Don't do that. Well, the reason I responded this way is because this happened. Or, or she said this, or, or he did that. No, don't, don't do any of those things. Let me encourage you, when that happens this week, and maybe today, dig deep and discover what's leading to that response. You can mow down weeds. You can just keep cutting them, but what's going to happen? They're just going to grow back, right? If you really want to get rid of the, reeds, the weeds, what do you have to do? You have to pull them up by the root. And here's a, here's a question to, to help us do this. This is from, uh, adapted from Tim Keller, which, by the way, Tim Keller's like the Yoda of addressing heart idols in his book, Counterfeit Gods. But listen to this question. He says, ask this question, what am I loving so much right now that my heart is moved to feel this way? What's my treasure right now that I am responding with bitterness and being defensive and being annoyed and being frustrated? And he goes on to say, if you ask that question, if you do this analysis more often than not, you'll immediately be embarrassed because many, many times the thing you're defending is your ego, your pride, and your self-esteem. Right? It's true of these men and that's true of us. And so do that heart work this week. And let me encourage you, here's a wonderful prayer to pray as you seek to identify those root idols and those desires that are competing with Christ and trying to exalt self. Pray Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, John's disciples show us how not to respond to the increase of Christ. And in doing so, they cause us to search our own hearts. That still leads us to question, okay, then, so then how should we respond at the exaltation of Jesus? And that leads us to number two, the decrease of self. Now we look at John the Baptist's response. How is he going to respond to his disciples? He's really faced with the decision here. Will he side with them? Will he join in their bitterness or will he celebrate the increasing popularity of Christ? And it may be easy to say, well, we know what he's going to do. But think about this for a moment. John's whole life was wrapped up in his ministry. From before he was even born, Luke chapter 1, in utero, he meets his cousin Jesus. Like He's not even born yet. And God's word tells us he, he jumps for joy. The Holy Spirit leads him to do that. Talk about an early start on your career, right? This was his whole life was devoted to this. We would understand if there was a moment where he says, I know, I know what you guys are saying, and I agree. I mean, I've been here longer. I've been doing this longer, right? But he doesn't respond that way. And just as his disciples' response reveals the attitude of their heart, so John's response reveals the attitude of his. 
And as we walk through his response, we're going to see four things. And I want you to know, those idols that you just thought about as we were talking a moment ago that might creep up this week, these four responses that John gives us are wonderful weapons in the fight against those idols. Notice how he responds. First, John trusts God. Look at verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. John's first response is to acknowledge God's sovereign plan. He says, every single thing, including his ministry, but he's speaking in generalities for us as well, God is in control of every single aspect of every single thing. Therefore, this, the decrease of my popularity for the increase of Jesus, is a part of his sovereign plan, and I will trust in him. I think of Job who lost everything in Job 121. What's his response? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He trusts in God's sovereign plan. Do you trust in God's sovereign plan? When you're frustrated by by things that aren't going the way you wanted. See, how does this combat idolatry? Well, when we trust in God and his plan, we have put God in the proper place in our hearts, right? And we're able to submit to him even if we don't understand it. So John knows this is part of God's plan. I have no reason to be upset because my God is a sovereign God. Nothing catches him off guard. And if it's a part of his plan, then I'm going to trust him. We also see, secondly, that John is thankful to God. Look at verse, again at verse 27. It says, John answered, a person cannot receive one, even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Not only is God sovereign over all things, but every good thing we have is a gift from God. That means I can celebrate it when I see it in others instead of complaining about it when I don't have it for myself. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. See, thankfulness combats our idolatry. When we're thankful to God for who he is and what he's done, we stop thinking that God is withholding something from us. And let's be honest, so many times when we're bitter and frustrated about something we don't have, we think God is keeping something from us that we need. That's what idolatry does. But thankfulness is, God, I have everything I need in you. I I can't believe what you've done for me. I'm amazed that you would save me, that you would call me your child, that you would bless me, that you would offer salvation to me, that there's, that there's breath in my lungs. And God, look what you're doing over here for that person. Praise God. Thankfulness is a powerful weapon against our idolatry. And John's thankful. Yep, the popularity is over, but the task that God, given, that God gave him was something that led to gratitude in his heart. We see also that John is secure in his identity. Look at verse 28. It says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent by him. John is a person, maybe more so than anyone else that we see in Scripture, who is completely aware of his purpose and knows his place. 
He knows who he is in light of Jesus. So, therefore, because he's secure in his identity, he doesn't need a higher position or more notoriety or any validation from others for his existence. He gets it in God. You see, if, if our identity is wrapped up in what we do or what we have, our possessions, or what others think about us or what the world deems worthy, we will never feel secure because those things aren't secure. Here today, gone tomorrow. But if our identity is in God, who never changes, if we know who we are, we can celebrate things like this. So, a, a wonderful question for you to ask this morning is, who does God say that I am? And here's the beautiful thing. If you've been with us as we walk through the Gospel of John, this question has already been answered. John chapter 1, verse 12, the Apostle John says, But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. And that is enough. It's enough for John and it should be enough for us. And notice, he goes on, verse 29, because he's secure, he's fine with being in the background. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Now, he introduces this wedding illustration. It's pretty simple to follow. Right? John is like the friend of the bridegroom, which we would, would be like an ancient equivalent. The modern equivalent would be the best man. Right? But the best man was more involved. He would prepare the wedding uh, a little more. He would also make sure that no other uh, suitors were trying to get to the bride, to the betrothed. Right, But then he would stand off in the back so the groom and the bride could be united. So John's saying, I'm like the best man. Jesus is the groom and the bride is the people of God. Who am I to get in the way? That's his mentality. We see this all throughout the Bible. We've seen it in John already in chapter 2. We saw the first miracle done at a wedding, and Clint talked a little bit about this sort of biblical theology of weddings. But just to give you a few verses where we see this, Isaiah 62.5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I think John would have had that verse in mind as he uses this illustration. And then Paul very clearly tells us about marriage. In Ephesians 5.32, he says this mystery of marriage is profound. And what I'm saying is that it refers to Christ and the church. So John says, who am I to get in the way of Jesus, the Savior, and his people? I'm not going to do that. My job is to point people to him. The best man at my wedding was a guy named Adam Webb. You have no idea who he is. right? A lot of people at our wedding didn't know who he is. But he was a great best man. Threw me a bachelor party. Made sure I had the rings the day of, right? Got me ready, made sure I had anything I needed. But nobody came to see Adam. In fact, when he showed up, he wasn't offended afterwards at the reception that people didn't really care to talk to him. And if you look at our pictures, Adam's in some of them, but he's never front and center. And he was content with that. Why? Because he knows he's not the groom. He's the best man. He was happy to stand in the background. And John is saying, that's who I am. So how does being secure in our identity combat our idolatry? Listen, when we're content with who God says we are and what he has for us, we don't need to look for validation in anything else, right? We don't need it. 
John says, I'm secure, I'm content, this is who I am, it's fine. And then lastly, we see that John is humble. This is the memory verse for you this week. John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. John knows what's at stake here. He knows if he doesn't decrease, then the salvation of the world is at stake. If Jesus doesn't increase in stature, if Jesus isn't united with his bride, the people of God, if his ministry doesn't grow, then none of us would be here. So he says, for the sake of the gospel, I'm going to bow out. Not only I'll decrease, he's not reluctant here, he says, I must. In fact, he practices what he preaches, and we never hear from John the Baptist again in the gospel of John. He shows utmost humility here. Now, what is humility? Here's a wonderful explanation from Tim Keller. And by the way, this isn't a book that we, I think we have on the back table called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Do we have some on the back table? At one time we did. I have some copies to give to you if you want one. It's very short, 40 pages. Um, and here's what he says. He says, gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself, It's an end to thoughts such as, I'm in the room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. Now, Keller goes on to give, I think, a hilarious illustration. He says, gospel humility is like toes. When was the last time you thought about your toes and just wondered if they're there, right? The men went axe throwing on Friday. So maybe afterwards, it's like, okay, we still have all our toes, right? You don't think about your toes. Toes don't draw attention to themselves. But if you were to suddenly, in some weird freak accident, lose all 10 toes, you'd have a hard time walking, right? Keller says that's like humility. So I guess if you get one thing from today, be a toe for Jesus, right? So how how does this humility combat our idolatry? Listen, Listen to what Keller says and what John says. It frees us to set our attention on what really matters, which is Jesus. This blessed self forgetfulness and rest. It is freeing. To not be so consumed with the exaltation of self and to know who you are in light of who God says you are. So trust, thankfulness, identity, and humility. Those four things are powerful weapons against your idolatry. And I'd encourage you, turn those into questions as you face those emotions. Am I trusting God? Do I have gratitude? Am I thankful to God? Am I secure in who he says I am? Am I humble before him? And notice the result for John, end of verse 29. He's not sulking, he's not walking away with his head bowed down. He says, this joy of mine is now complete. You could translate that. John is saying, I now have joy to the fullest. As Christ increases and I decreased, I have found ultimate satisfaction in him. And that leads us to number three, the joy for each of us. See, when we, like John, when we increase, uh, live for the increase of Christ and the decrease of self, we experience that ultimate delight, right? Jesus gets the glory, we get the joy. But I want to be careful here because the, the biggest takeaway from this text is not, okay, now go be humble. Because you know how hard that is. All right, I'm going to go be humble. 
You know, pull myself up by the bootstraps. I'm going to get in the car, and then before you even get to work, right, that bitterness is welling up. But again, this is not an external problem, so it doesn't need an external solution. This is a heart issue for, for John's disciples and for us. So it needs an internal heart solution. And what happens here in these next few verses is the Apostle John now starts speaking, and he's summing up not just this passage, but he's actually summing up the entire chapter, all of chapter 3, what we saw last week and this week, and he's bringing it all back to the salvation that's offered to us in Jesus. So how do we get this joy? We get it by receiving the gift of salvation. Look at verse 31, and this is a weighty text. We don't have time to dig into all of this, but notice what he says. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Speaking of Jesus. Then he says, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So we see this wording of receiving again, common in John. We saw it last week, receiving a gift. What does John 3.16 say? God gave us his only son out of the overflow of his love. Last week we looked at regeneration, what it means to be born again. That's not something that you can do for yourself. It is a gift from God. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist has already told us in this passage, every good gift is given from above. And then we come to verse 33, and what this really means is to receive Jesus is to receive the one who sent him. It's to receive a gift. So before we can go and start living humbly, we have to receive the gift of salvation and let God create that humble heart within us. Hopefully you'll get some good gifts this Christmas. Christmas season is approaching. And I mean like good thought out gifts, not like, oh, these coasters from Las Vegas, thank you so much for thinking of me. But like a a real meaningful gift. Someone's thought about it. They've invested maybe, uh, you know, they've gone above and beyond financially to give you this gift. And how strange would it be in that moment to say, man, I love this gift. And then break out your checkbook and say, I love it. How much do I owe you? That would, be, that would be an insult, right? See, what John 3 shows us, not just this passage, but last week as well, is that salvation is a gift to us, and to try and work to earn it is an insult to the giver. So we, we get this joy first and foremost by receiving it humbly. Maybe joy is elusive to you because you haven't received the gift that God has offered, the gift of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. So first, we must receive this gift. And then John goes on to show us where this joy comes from. He shows us that it's from within the loving relationship of the Trinity. In verse 34, he says, The Father gives Jesus the Spirit without measure. Now, this is prophetic language. The prophets in the Old Testament would receive the Spirit. But here's the thing. Prophets would get the Spirit given to them from God according to the task that they had to accomplish but not without measure. It was measured to what they had to do. But here John says, no, no, no. This is the true and better prophet. This is God in the flesh, and he has the spirit without measure. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. So here's what we're seeing here. 
We're seeing this eternal relationship within the Trinity of love and joy. And what John is saying, he's giving us a glimpse. He's saying, listen, this joy, this salvation, it doesn't originate here. It's actually been happening for all eternity between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And you say, okay, well, wait a second. That's great. That sounds wonderful. But what does that have to do with us? And then we come to verse 36, and John tells us, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Translation, do you want this overflowing salvation that's in the Godhead? Here's how you get it. By believing in Jesus, by receiving the gift. Jesus tells us in John 7, 38 and 39, he says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So you say, how could John the Baptist live in such a way? How can he decrease and say, my joy is overflowing? Well, we receive that in Jesus. That spirit without measure that is given to Christ is then given to us when we believe. But he also gives us here this final half of verse 36. He gives us a warning of what happens if we reject him and exalt self. He says, the wrath of God remains on us. Wrath is not a temper tantrum. It is God's just and settled anger against our sin. So here's what John is saying here to just sort of tie it all together. He's saying Christ's increase plus our decrease equals complete joy. That's the offer to us. But if we flip that around, if we say we're going to increase self and we're going to decrease Christ, then what's offered to us? Deserved wrath. And so how are we going to respond to this? And let me just encourage you, let's together as we consider the joy that is found in decreasing so that Jesus would increase in our lives. Let's humbly receive him. And when we do, when we humbly receive him, some of you need to do that for the first time. But others have been walking with Christ for a long time. But as you look at your life, you just find, I'm joyless. Receive him afresh and find that your relationship with God will be joyful. Your relationship with others will be joyful and your inner life will be overflowing with the joy that God offers to us in Christ. When Jesus gets the glory, we get the joy. Let's pray together. And as we pray, I want to read a passage of, uh, for you. It's a scripted prayer by a pastor named Scotty Smith in light of this text. This is our closing prayer. Lord Jesus, we'd love more of John the Baptist's joy. The joy of hearing your voice. The joy of your increase and our decrease. Even in his mother's womb, John leapt for joy before you. We want to be that free, that glad, and that peaceful in your presence. God, then we, like John, would be quicker to make much of you and less of ourselves. We'd serve more and whine less. We'd encourage more and criticize less. We'd give more and self-protect less. We'd accept that you, our God, give and take away, believing that both come as sovereign appointments from the throne of grace. 
Such joy would free us for a life of contentment because it's anchored in you, not determined by people, possessions, or politics. We'd be quicker to love others as you love them, not as we want them to be. We'd savor the riches of grace more and rehearse our disappointments less. We'd be smitten with your affection and barely impacted by criticisms, digs, and slights. Such joy would enable us to be present in the moment and less preoccupied with the next thing. Make it so, Jesus, we pray. Make it so. Refresh our joy in you. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.